Oh, where am I? Why don't they bring sunblock? Well, sunblock's bad for the ocean, most of it. Most of it is, most of it is. Where are we going here? Jeff, where are you? You were supposed to meet me here. Can't do the show on my own. Well, it's as I suspected. Not much left to look at. But, um... The spirit of the island is still intact. You can feel it. <laughs> and welcome! Ugh, not that spirit. What we made of it, I mean. You're listening to the Platinum Standard in Paranormal Talk. Paratopia. With Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney. Jeff! Jeff! Rescue me! Hello. Jeff, it didn't take us long to come back and start doing the show again, did it? Yeah, together again, huh? (laughs) How are we doing this time? Good, good. I think there was some sort of plot where I came back to the island and you were the smoke. I I, I don't know. It's all all a a blur to me. I'm just going to leave that all behind. That's probably better off, yeah. Yeah. Much like the ending of Lost, I'm just going to say, you know what? Forget all that. It's about... (laughs) It's about the characters. It's about you and me, Jeff. Yeah, we're dead. <laughs> Inside. Uh, so a lot has uh, happened. Uh, it, it's funny. A lot has happened since we left in the world of ufology. And yet, at the same very same time, it has stayed the same. Nothing at all has changed. No, no. Uh, do we want to address any of that? Uh, <laughs> First of all, do you find it funny that it just happened like the second we left? I mean, clearly that's a coincidence, but it's a fun one. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, well, it, well, let's be honest here. The turd was quickly spiraling the cosmic toilet when we left, so I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, horribly surprised to see it's gone completely off the skids. Wait a minute. I think this is a dream. I know I've been here before. I know we've done this before. Uh, well, Jeff, here we are, many years later. Yeah, uh, how are we doing this time? Uh, I don't know. I, I, before, arguably, we were ahead of our time, but I think now maybe we're just like right on time. Why are we back? <laughs> why, are, why are we here? Why are we doing this? Uh, glutton for punishment, I believe. <laughs> it's the word we're looking for here. Glutton for punishment. Yes. Uh, well, everybody out there, uh, welcome back to Paratopia. Uh, rumors of our death have been greatly exaggerated. As you may know, uh, Jeff moved on and did Paranormal Waypoint after our Paratopia podcast, and I uh, much later went on to do the Experience podcast. Jeff? You're not actually here, are you? We're not really together. Well, I just want to thank you for the time that we did have. You always were the soul of the island. Which is, uh, cheesy. (laughs) Perfect. A 
Aloha, Peritopians, old and new. My name is Jeremy Vaney, and I am the co-host of Peritopia. And uh, I recorded this already. In typical Peritopia fashion, I recorded an intro um, that was probably about all the wrong things. And because I did that, my computer shut itself down. This track did not automatically save. And here I am re-recording... <laughs> The intro. So I'm going to take a bit of advice from the ether and go in a different direction and just say to you, welcome. Thank you for listening to a show um, that if you've heard it before, you know why you're back because no other show has uh, done what we did, Jeff Ritzman and I, and um, still isn't. And if you are new, Welcome to something that is really an arcing journey. I mean, when I say that no one's ever done what we've what we were doing, um, part of that wasn't conscious. Part of that is the totality of what we ended up doing, which is its own story. And I will let that story unfold for you. I won't give any spoilers. Um, it's a multi-dimensional unfolding, though. I'll just say that uh, in terms of the people we interviewed, the discoveries we made along the way the way that ufology responded to what we were doing, but also the way the phenomena, the enigmatic other, as I think Terrence McKenna was fond of saying, and Jeff was fond of saying, uh, how that responded in our lives and especially in Jeff's life. And, um, the reason that I'm relaunching this, which, uh, ended up being a subscription show back in the day, and then we ended up selling the archive. Um, well, it's we're going to redo it here all for free. Peritopia, the Peritopia Live Show, Peritopia Oculus, all the subscription stuff that you only, if you weren't a subscriber, heard like the first half hour of or the first half of whatever it was. Um, everything free. So that's it now. Jeff, uh, if you don't know, Jeff Ritzman has passed away. He was one of the great unsung geniuses of paranormal research. He was an amazing artist, an amazing musician, an amazing family man, in all ways amazing. And now he is no more. He is not here. Um, and it's really weird for me to listen to these and listen to, like, Jeff, who sounds so alive in these recordings, and often speaking to guests who are now dead <laughs> and it's like really is like i'm sitting in on a conversation between spirits talking about ghosts or something um it's just it's just odd so for older listeners you know that's one way to listen to it right um the other is this unwinding sort of quote-unquote hero's journey that we take with the audience through thick and thin the other is to just enjoy the depth of conversation, and hopefully the comedy bits aren't too stale. Back in the day, we did we wrapped this up in a you know sort of a sugar coating of of a giant skit that was one part Fantasy Island, two parts Lost TV show. Um, and back then, people didn't do comedy. Um, in these things because it was too serious and, you know, too close to making fun of 
this stuff. But we were experiencers, and we are, or I am. Jeff is the experience at this point. But I am an experiencer of High Strangeness, and so, and we both were. And um, so, it's not like we were debunkers making jokes. It's like we were, I guess, the rare experiencer who, um, A, wasn't afraid to call something funny, funny, and B, uh, understood that discernment was incredibly necessary in this. And in fact, you'll be hearing some of that a little later in the listener roundtable um, in this episode, this introductory episode. So there was an introductory episode to the archive, um, but in typical Jeff and I fashion, uh, we were going to do a 20 minute and it ended up being a two hour and like the first 15 minutes um, was introductory to the archive, and then the rest was like catching up with our experiences. So I'm actually not using that introduction as this introduction, even though anyone who didn't buy the archive hasn't heard that. And um, that's going to be the final episode of all this because um, I don't want to spoil anything for any of the new people out there. I know that Ufology has brought in new people um, since 2017, and oh, we'll be talking about whether that was a good choice or not. Very soon with Tyler Coke, John and Jack Brewer. But whether it was or not, I think everyone's going to everyone with an open mind, everyone who doesn't know what these high strangest paranormal ufological crypto whatever all phenomena are. Everyone who isn't dead set on forming a position and defending it at all costs to try to make the unknown known to them because they need to control things in fear. The unknown. Uh, anyone like that? You're gonna you're gonna love this show. Anyone else? You will either be converted, converted into loving this show, or you will hate it. One of the two. Um, I, I know during its run, we did hear from people who said, "Wow, you know, you changed my mind on these things," and so on and so forth. And just as much, or probably more so, we heard from people who were like, uh, "No, you're you're full of crap." Um, but that'll come later. You'll, you'll figure that out later. I don't want, again, no spoilers for this journey. Just know that this show, um, like no other podcast, uh, before since changed ufology. And if you've never heard of this show and you, then you don't know that that happened, then how important was that change after all? Right? Like, did it really change anything? This is the big question. Does anything in ufology change? Um, or is it just various flavors of stagnation? Um, because here we are once again on what too many people feels like the precipice of revelation, disclosure, whatever. Um, and I, I would argue that's nonsense. That just we get to this precipice every now and then and then nothing happens. But I'll make that argument a little bit better with Jack Brewer and Tyler Coke John in just a moment. Um, anything else I need to say here? Oh, yeah, I guess. Um, so I, I made the files of this show smaller and I made our voices a little bit louder. I was able to amplify things. Um, but I did not take out the commercial breaks or any of that. You know, like, well, because I'm lazy, but I justified it in my head this way. Like, you know, like when you look at nostalgia TV shows, you know, you 
you go back and you look at TV shows you watched when you were a kid on YouTube, and sometimes the person who posted them has the commercial breaks in them. It's kind of cool, right? Like, you like seeing those old commercials. Like, that's part of the nostalgia. I figured that's kind of like the same thing here. Um, but also, it's just hysterical to hear, like, how many people are doing... You're listening to Paratopia for us, who we then end up disavowing or end up, you know, in some sort of war with. (laughs) Or like Phil and Brogno, who ends up, uh, you know, being a a liar, who just like lied about his background completely and then dropped away from ufology. Although at this point, he's probably back or due back any moment because people aren't. Well, they're not as forgiving so much as forgetting in this field. They've probably forgotten that he lied about his background. <laughs> but but it's just hysterical to me to listen back to these episodes and be like, oh, I can't wait to have Phil back on. Oh, I can't wait to go do this field trip with Phil and Brogno. Isn't this great? Phil and Brogno. And then, wah, 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 wah. But you can play that game. You can make a drinking game out of many of the guests and many of the things that we uh, support and talk about. You know, old timers of the show, old Paratopians, Take a drink and, well, don't. You'll, you'll be drunk by the end of probably every episode. Every time someone who done us wrong is mentioned in a favorable light. That's all part of the hero's journey. That's all part of losing our innocence in this. Uh, we just wanted to do a show with deep conversations between two experiencers and whoever would listen, uh, wrapped in a sugar coating of comedy. That's all we wanted to do. But, oh, the enigmatic other and the uh, field at large had different plans for us. So... Uh, all right. I won't be labor. Yeah, wait, I will belabor one more, one more belaboring. Um, because I, you know, also during the show, uh, what is still functional? I guess I should mention this. Uh, our Paratopia Twitter is still functional. Um, the email, if you want to contact me, uh, Paratopia podcast at gmail.com. That is still functional and Paratopia.net. So I've, um, added on, Paratopia.net, that's still functional, bring you right to Paratopia, but ultimately Paratopia is an uh, add-on to uh, my website, OurUndoing.com, as this show is appearing under the banner of Our Undoing Radio. Um, So I have uh, Our Undoing Radio, which is the flagship podcast, and then this, and eventually when it's time to... Uh, go to Paratopia Live. Paratopia Live will be another, you know, show under the banner of Our Undoing Radio. And whatever the hell else we do here. Um, this is just to help me keep costs down because I'm, as I said, I'm not charging money. But I should tell you that Paratopia.net is not, it's not the same website. So whatever sections we may be referencing, like we get a message board, I'll have a message board. But there's a section on there called Clues which is like evidence of stuff, uh, paranormal stuff. Um, that doesn't exist. But any evidence we do have, I'm going to try my best to repost it all um, in the section called Down the Hatch. Um, anyway, just go to paratopia.net and tool around and have fun. It will be a growing, expanding website uh, through the years as well. Or piece of website of ourundoing.com. And I welcome you, of course, to go to ourundoing.com. And um, if you like the transcendental spiritual stuff that I talk about, our undoing is basically that. <laughs> it's an extension of urgency, my book Urgency. Um, so that's all of that. Um, if anything, I haven't 
I've said here doesn't make sense, just email me, paratopiapodcast at gmail.com, um, and I'll try to clarify. So this show will launch every Friday, um, which is what I think we did in the past, and then um, Paratopia Live was on Sundays. So I'll try to keep that going, the, the timing of all of that going. Um, and... Um, I will only be jumping in now and then to do new episodes. I, I prob- probably not that much. I really, I was doing a show called the experience for Whitley Strieber's unknowncountry.com And I quit that and said, I was quitting ufology. I'm just done. Uh, I have no love for any of this anymore. Um, you know, <laughs> like just these conversations to me without Jeff feel irrelevant and, um, but ironically, uh, Jeff's death is sort of pulling me back in, in this minimal way. Um, so ironically, because of course I can't have conversations with him anymore, which is frustrating when I'm listening back to these episodes and I'm like, oh, I should ask Jeff about that. And it's like, oh, right. Can't. Um, so, all right. That is that this intro show. I didn't want it to just be me saying this type of stuff. So I've actually got a quite a lineup here for you. Um, by the way, if you're wondering why I'm releasing this weekly as opposed to just all at once, uh, it is because I want to attract new people. I want, I want new people in ufology and in these fields who think that they know what this is all about or think that they've heard what it's about represented well in the mainstream media that maybe attracted them here to know that there is mystery here. And that mystery isn't simply like, I believe in UFOs and my neighbor doesn't or my mom doesn't. Therefore, I am above the sheeple in some way or whatever. Like, that's all trite stuff. There's a depth here and it's not being catered to. And part of the reason it's not being catered to is when you go into depth of any sort, uh, there is, as Carl Jung noted, uh, a self of the depths and a self of the shallow surface. And to have conversations, conversations, you generally have to be surface level and to go into depth, you generally have to be by yourself. And so it is rare. It is hard and it is rare to, uh, bring depth up through conversation in a public way, especially it can be done of course in private settings, but it's hard in a public dialogue to do that. And generally People don't live there, right? People live on the shallow surface end of things. And so that's what TV and radio and all that is geared for. Um, so don't be fooled by it. <laughs> that's not what this stuff is about. It's not about little alien doctors doing little alien doctor things. What is it about? Well, let's see if we can't get a little bit closer to it. Um, the other reason to not release all of this stuff at once is because it's a lot like every episode is at least two hours long and they are meaty. They are jam packed with things to ponder. And I think your head would explode if I even released two of these a week. Um, I mean, no joke. I think the show is that good. So you'll see, um, we'll give you a taste of it. Although it ain't the same without Jeff. That's for sure. Um, so let me, uh, make a running gag of not belaboring the point one more time. Um, when I, uh, go to the message board, if you want, um, 
or or email me personally, whatever you want to do, and let me know if there's at any point, especially ye old timers who have heard this stuff before, if there is a specific episodes or a specific point at which you want me to chime in with something new um, or a commentary on uh, either a specific episode or set of episodes or a specific time of the Peritopia history to just even do like a commentary on what was really going through our heads, what was really going on at that point or anything, anything you got. I mean, I will be as open and honest with you as humanly possible. Um, if there's something that interests you that you want to hear from me, let me know. And, um, I'll come on here and blah, blah, blah. And if you want to come on with me and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this was always, this was one of the ways that we were, um, different than other shows is we tried to actually give it over to the audience uh, before anyone ever did stuff like that. I mean, we literally tried to give the show over to the audience. The audience wouldn't have it. <laughs> like a few people did. In fact, Colin, who you'll be hearing from later, uh, was one such who, lucky us, took us up on the offer of hosting his own show and doing a show on his own experiences. Um, so if anyone wants to do that, I'll actually open that back up. You know, well, I'll, I'm not, you know, I want out, but if it's interesting and useful to anyone out there, um, I'll definitely open it up to record your own episodes if you would like to do one, and and I'll put those out. And if it ends up being like a ton of people, who knows? At this point in history, maybe everyone wants to be heard. Well, then maybe that can get its own day of the week on R&Doing Radio. All right, uh, that's it. Let's start this shebang off with Tyler Cokejohn and uh, Jack Brewer. Uh, and let's discuss what I think is helpful at this moment, which is as experiencers and or as quote unquote believers, that'd be any of you out there who haven't had experiences, but believe this stuff to be true. If you just came into it from 2017's New York times, Leslie Kane article or any of the, because of any of the fallout from that um, or the push from that, should you be skeptical of what has come from that? And how do you be properly skeptical if you're a quote unquote believer and or an experiencer? Like what is the proper, where does your skepticism go? Where does your sense of discernment uh, go? What's a useful couple of things to know about that? We're going to talk about it in just a moment. And then after that, uh, I'll just roll right into the roundtable discussion with a whole bunch of people. So here we go. Thank you for tuning in. Get ready for uh, to clear your calendar for the next couple of years. Peritopia is back, baby. Jack Brewer is an author and investigative reporter on the UFO beat over there at his blog, the UFO trail. And Tyler Coke, John is a doctor or is he, he's retired, <laughs> but back when he was a doctor, in his spare time from searching for a cure for Alzheimer's disease and teaching students, he was helping Jeff Ritzman and me with our uh, scientific inquiry into experiencers of high strangeness called Project Core. I told you in the beginning, this podcast went places no other podcast has gone before or since, and Project Core is one of them. You can find it at paratopia.net. You can find Tyler, along with Jack, right here, right now. Gentlemen, thank you for helping me relaunch this show to a new generation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, 
Same here, Jeremy. Um, and uh, I was thinking instead of just doing random chit chat, which I am fond of, uh, maybe I should do something, you know, helpful because I think a lot of people have come into ufology, especially, and maybe the paranormal stuff at large as a result of, um, the, the ufological, uh, upswing in popularity or mainstream coverage at least. Um, so it seems to have been uh, coming at us since 2017, since a New York Times article was written on UFOs that was sort of, ooh, ah, look, the mainstream is taking it seriously. So I'm just wondering if maybe we can get at what is a way to look at these phenomena um, or the people in them that is properly skeptical and that is useful even for experiencers and quote-unquote believers who believe this stuff but don't have any real experiences in it like, what is the proper way to be skeptical as opposed to just believing everything or disbelieving everything that comes out of um, this mainstream sort of push for us to engage with what was formerly UFOs, now UAP? Um, and maybe I will start with Tyler because we had talked privately about even the fact that this Leslie Kane article was published in 2017 in the New York Times. Like, how good was the article versus the medium that picked it up and why, if it wasn't that great, would they pick it up? Maybe you can uh, fill in the blanks of my, my vagary there. Uh, the first thing that, that I want to uh, point out to your listeners is that I don't have any professional or financial conflicts with this particular area of interest. I'm not a stockholder uh, in the, uh, TTSA, the To the Stars Academy, or anything. I, I don't work with any of the of the authors of the papers, and never have. That said, uh, the 2017 article by uh, Helene Cooper, I think she was the first author. Uh, Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane uh, was really a sensation, and it um, I, the, obviously the New York Times knew, or I think they reasonably should have known that it would draw a lot of interest and they put it front and center on the front page. So a lot of people that would ordinarily skip something that was maybe back in section B saw this one. And uh, I think honestly, uh, what they did uh, was remarkable in that uh, a Pentagon program that had been under wraps, uh, perhaps secret. I'm not clear on that. Maybe Jack will, will um, delve into that uh, later. But um, they revealed this program, and it was about UFOs, or what we're now referring to as UAPs, in the Pentagon, an official program after years of, well, no, we don't do that kind of stuff. And it prompted quite a firestorm. Uh, your idea about or question about how are you pro properly skeptical, uh, immediately the next day, a follow-up, by uh, Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane, follow-up article in the Times appeared, and um, almost on a preemptive basis. Uh, but uh, it's called "On the Trail of the Secret Pentagon UFO Program," and um, I guess that was by Ralph Blumenthal only. Uh, but anyway, he he asked the question, he posed the question: How does the story on UFOs get into the New York Times? And his answer to that was not easily, and only after a great deal of vetting. I assure you. And he also adds that it was important not to take anything on faith. And I think those are, are words to the wise. So 
for everyone. But coming back, one of the things that happened is the story provoked immediate controversy because some of the things that were presented as fact or factual were really hard to pin down, uh, including things like what was uh, Luis Elizondo's actual role. Uh, and, and that's still roiling the waters. But they had a, re a remarkable series of uh, statements that um, buildings were modified in Las Vegas to store metal alloys and materials that uh, Elizondo and contractors said were recovered from UAPs. Uh, people were studied that claimed physical effects from UAP encounters, and uh, they were studied for physiological changes. That's research with human subjects, by the way. And then um, interviewed, they interviewed uh, service personnel who reported sightings. That seems to be the one that was best pinned down. But my question and, and what struck me was, is that really fact-checked? Did, did, did they really look at it? Because some of these things haven't really quite come across or been uh, verified to be maybe the way they seem to be in the um, the first uh, first blush of reading the article. And in fact, Helene Cooper had a um, statement on podcast uh, uh, about a day later saying that as she's going home, she's, you know, it sounded pretty good. She talked to uh, Luis Elizondo. Um, he's quite a character. And, uh, and then she said uh, doubts started to creep in with her. Now, it's her role, as I understand it, Helene Cooper's role was as uh, an active New York Times reporter who reported frequently on military affairs, Pentagon uh, programs, whatnot. And, and she uh, carefully delineated the idea that what she was to do was to investigate the presence or absence of a program, which she was able to confirm and, and put a lot of work into it. The other strange thing about the article, from my perspective, was that Helen Cooper was the only active New York Times reporter on this story, that Ralph Blumenthal had left the Times after a long career, uh, 10 years earlier, and I don't think Leslie King was ever really formally associated with the Times, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on that. Uh, and that seems strange to me because you've got a potentially earth-shaking program that has revealed materials from something that could be a major security risk to the United States or perhaps evidence of extraterrestrial civilizations. And only one person on the Times wanted in on this? Uh, I have never, never quite understood that. So anyway, I think uh, Blumenthal's ideas of how to be a skeptic are great. I'm just not sure that they followed him. Well, let me, that's, before... That's my take on him. Thank you. Before... Jack jumps in. Let me just ask you um, if you can explain just even a little bit of how, like the for financial reasons, I think it was that the uh, they don't have someone who yays and nays things as stringently as they used to. Am I wrong in thinking I'm, that? I'm not clear. Or they just not have a I proofreader? Like I can't remember what it is they got rid of. <laughs> <laughs> well, they uh, all news organizations are uh, have been subject to contractions. And uh, one of the things that I was actually talking to Jack about and I asked several times, like, who edited this? And something that I had forgotten, I went back and reviewed all these things, uh, was that uh, several, several editors uh, were involved. And these were, these were really uh, some very accomplished and high-level people. So Dean Bacay, Mark Mazzetti, who's well-known for his um, investigations of national security 
um, work, and he is was the investigations editor. And uh, Elizabeth Boomiller, who is their Washington bureau chief, these are really, really accomplished, uh, you know, superb uh, reporters and editors who would know how to go about this. Uh, and so they they did in fact have uh, an editor. What I think we talked about earlier was that there was a time when the New York Times had a public editor who was the advocate of the reader. So people like us could read this and say, could you bet that? And send it to the public editor. One of them uh, used to be Margaret Sullivan, but they've had had several. And they would go back and, and check around and see how things were done. Was everything okay? That position, as I understand it, is no more. So you, you don't have the ability to really question. You can write letters to the editor, of course, and you can write complaints. But uh, sort of like the open questioning, that's, that's kind of vanished, I think. Um, if you remember way back, uh, boy, 15 years ago or more, uh, the New York Times was raked over the coals for reporting uh, the, uh, that involved the Iraq War or uh, Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction and, uh, I guess, credulous reporting. And, uh, and so that's part of the, as I understand it, the impetus to have a uh, maybe a public editor and a, a voice for people beyond the, the usual channels. But I think that, um, yeah, the, the public editor, I think, is, is now no more and hasn't been for a while. But um, when you look at it, there were a lot of people in the editorial chain. And the article uh, is pretty good in some ways, that they, they see quotes from people. But again, it's strange, in my view because they got quotes from Sarah Seeger and um, Jim Oberg, who were kind of the skeptics, but they seem to be responding to the notion of UAPs in a general way and not the specifics of this program. And they had uh, quotes, direct quotes from Harry Reid and uh, Lou Elizondo, and some indirect quotes of um, Robert Bigelow from other reporting sources, which was uh, uh, kind of interesting. So um, on balance, they, they sort of had balance, but this was a Pentagon program and apparently not highly regarded because it was canceled and they couldn't find anybody else to comment. Uh, that, that struck me as, as odd. Outside of, of the group involved with TTSA and the, and the people who were, I don't know if they're really technically properly whistleblowers, okay. but the people that brought this forward struck me as strange. Jack, you want to jump in? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think that, that Dr. Coke John has done a good job of, uh, I'd like to say I appreciate him going over the points he did of when you first brought it up, Jeremy, about um, how should a person approach this that um, might be new or not so new to it. I initially think about things like that, that I look for researchers and writers and presenters that that consistently differentiate between their ideas and what they can show as fact. And when they assert something, do, do they show how it's an established fact or do they start blurring the lines? And, uh, you know, traditionally, UFO education has been more about let me persuade you to agree with me than actually educate people about the circumstances. 
And the December 2017 New York Times article is concerning in a number of those ways. I uh, submitted a number of um, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests, over the years now, and some of them did pertain to the people that um, Tyler mentioned there uh, of uh, Boo Miller and uh, Mazzetti and Kane Blumenthal and others, and any email correspondence or memos that there might be with Pentagon spokespersons or certain DOD personnel about this story and have never been able to find anything from a number of agencies and sources that I submitted these requests to. The, it, it may be a matter of that emails and correspondence just aren't saved uh, about certain things or with journalists or, or something to that effect is there's been some other uh, questions arising about that kind of thing as well as, as for example with Mr. Elizondo and what his actual role is um, I, I had a FOIA request closed in which I asked the defense intelligence agency that initially was tasked with running this project for any email or correspondence with Elizondo, and they replied they had none with him. So did they uh, get rid of it? Did they destroy it? That's not what they said. They just said there wasn't any. He has filed a complaint uh, via an attorney uh, or a couple or more complaints with the uh, Defense Department's Office of the Inspector General that uh, he has outright alleged a disinformation campaign conducted against him. So, again, I'll reiterate, as was said, this just created a whole firestorm, but what can actually be established as fact compared to a bunch of empty assertions, you could pretty much fit on a postcard some four and a half years later now. And to, to make that all the more frustrating, uh, Senator Reid, Harry Reid, who was instrumental in getting uh, funding for the project and for Robert Bigelow, actually chastised the media for not looking at all of this supposedly unclassified material. And I've been notified in my FOIA request that uh, we're now looking at it's going to be like five years or more before my uh, I get final responses for um, ATIP contracts and what the stipulations of the program were and those kind of documents um, that, you know, Senator Reid was criticizing people for not taking a look at. And we're looking at some five years since, since the story broke that, that the DIA still won't turn those, those records over or is in the process of um, 
clearing them through the FOIA and some other writers like Frank Warren at UFO Chronicles and I made repeated attempts uh, with um, the original three writers, Cooper, Blumenthal, Kane, to establish if they wouldn't share with us what information they were given or what the sources were for these assertions, could they at least tell us what it was about or, or what led them to believe these things that they asserted. And uh, the lack of responses were evasive, in my opinion. And what responses were given were um, arguably even more evasive, that were circular in logic and uh, put, put Frank Warren off for weeks at a time to ultimately just refer him back to the original article. It, it, uh, in my opinion, there's just a lot of red flags here and very few facts that were established. And I, I don't see how that could even be argued at this point. Um, there's a lot of problems with this story. Well, it seems like there are two tracks to this. One, which has sort of been put on the back burner, it seems, which is uh, there's some sort of crashed alien material that they're not going to quite say is alien yet, but that's what they want you to believe. And then there's the footage, which has taken the prominent lead here in the last few months, at least. Um, and uh, now the, the crash retrieval stuff is <laughs> what has been said of it publicly. Sounds like hot garbage to put a fine point on it. In fact, um, you know, one of the people, Jacques Vallée, who I, his former work, I have great respect for, but the fact that he wrote a book with Paula Harris, who's a known bunk artist, um, about, well, a non-existent case, in my view, with uh, some alien crash material. And in an interview, I think prior to the release of the book, Jacques Vallée eventually admitted that they had this re they, they had this uh examined thoroughly and uh it, it appears to be like a common um you know piece of metal hinge or something you I think he even said something you might be able to buy on eBay. So <laughs> but purportedly was taken from an alien spaceship by what were children at the time in the nineteen forties. But he wrote the book anyway, right? Like, he went ahead with the book project anyway. It seems like we're seeing a lot of this. It's not just questionable on the New York Times end, but people in the field who you should be able to trust, who have a track record of uh, trust, um, are just letting it all go. It's all, and I don't know for what, and including skeptics even, um, like the debunker-type skeptics, who seem to all be on the same page with at least, you know, we'll do articles in Scientific American about, like, let's do a thought experiment about UAP. What if? But they're, they're even in their skepticism, are embracing the new terminology and are embracing the framing of this in a way that does strike me as something you would have heard about uh, in the 80s and 90s as a way to prepare us for disclosure, right? Like this all seems to be the way it would go to prepare us for disclosure. 
but it doesn't seem to me that there's anything to disclose uh, from any of the stuff that they have shown, including the footage, um, or that even the characters talking about it are trustworthy. I don't know. Am I missing something here? It just seems like there are shady characters who come out of nowhere, like Jeremy Corbell, who we're just supposed to trust, even though he comes, he seems to come out of nowhere just with Bob Lazar, like attached to Bob Lazar. That's already shady. But somehow, like the Navy is anonymously funneling him UFO footage that he is releasing to the public in drips and drabs the way, like, the government might want you to if they were doing a psyop, but certainly in a way that people in ufology used to scorn. Because if you've got the evidence, just show it all. Just bring it out. Well, Jeremy Corbell is in ufology. Why isn't he just doing that? So there are all these moving parts of of things that, that I find um, not trustworthy. And yet it seems like ufology at large is trusting them. And the public at large is oddly disinterested in. Is that, you think that's fair to say? Like the whole thing is surreal to me in a mediocre to bad way. <laughs> I think that's uh, a fair assessment. Uh, as you were saying that, Jeremy, I was thinking about how uh, I, I uh, spend uh, pretty much my um, exposure to what we might call the UFO subculture at, at this point in time, post COVID and everything, pretty much is Twitter. And I have observed that since the um, underwhelming UAP report was was published, it seems that that has quieted down a lot. The enthusiasm has quieted down. And some of the leading voices uh, that haven't gone more quiet have begun to kind of turn each on each other. And it almost seems like um, they might be getting the idea that, that some of their enthusiasm and trusting was misdirected. That's just an initial thought that I've had on it. Well, let me, and maybe I'll throw this to Tyler, I don't know, but um, can you think of anything that makes sense of this? In other words, like when the report came out, my whole thinking on this this UAP report was going to be, and I still believe it uh, to an extent, that it's about getting military funding either for that, that Space Force or for, um, you know, a Star Wars missile defense shield around the U.S. because the whole framing of the UAP thing is about like, you know, there are these unidentified things in the sky. They could be from another country. They could be from another planet. We don't know what they are, but we know we must defend against them. So, and they're just happen to be right wingers like Marco Rubio, you know, who are really pressing the point that we need to look into this. So is this going to be all about military funding in the end? Is this all a con for more military funding at a time when like we want to pay attention to infrastructure and, you know, climate change and things like that? Does that really explain it, though? And the other level of this, which is the crash retrieval stuff, hasn't even kicked in in terms of the mainstream, right? Like, that hasn't gone anywhere. It, are they waiting to, to shine the spotlight on that aspect of it? Um, I guess, Tyler, do you see anything that makes sense of this in a conventional PSYOP way? <laughs> well, 
Yeah, since so many of the PSYOP things don't seem to make sense in general, uh, we're following that same pattern. The uh, the notion that uh, perhaps it is a vehicle or opportunity for funding, I think would have to be uh, something in the mix. It certainly sounds like uh, something that should be investigated, if not by the military, by someone competent. I don't know that I would have picked uh, Mr. Elizondo to be uh, the public face of the program and in the way that they did it, uh, in particular, the, take a look at the follow-up article uh, by Blumenthal where they uh, talk about meeting, uh, or Helene Cooper talks about meeting him in a hotel where he sat with his back against the wall, and, uh, kind of furtive, uh, strange environment. Um, I guess that builds intrigue, but I, I don't think it builds credibility, uh, scientific credibility. The retrieved materials uh, I find particularly fascinating since that was um, alleged and that um, Mr. Bigelow was alleged to be, uh, I guess, the curator of them. Uh, and six months later, I came another article. There's a, there's a body of work now by uh, Mr. Blumenthal and, and Ms. Kane. And uh, six months later, they started talking about the retrieved materials in very specific terms again. And they had a um, scientist, Eric Davis, who's an astrophysicist, talk about uh, we, we couldn't make it ourselves and examinations failed to reveal the origins. But again, no comment from the person or persons who actually did the work, I think, here. You have to maybe people interpret this differently. I'm not sure that Mr. Davis did, which would be somewhat close to hearsay. But if those fragments have been identified in a Pentagon program, what's the Pentagon's position on this? How many of the fragments were revealed to be known, prosaic, uh, junk? Uh, you know, I mean, we, we're just not getting anywhere. And then when you start to, when, when they get to the edge, it's always, well, that's classified. Can't tell you. Okay. Well, Tyler, let me ask, actually... Let me ask you this, because you just clicked on something here for me. You're so you're you uh, a, a retired uh, doctor and professor and all of that, and you worked on Alzheimer's disease. Um, let's say the government came to you and they're like, "Hey, we've got this uh, alien body, and we want you to dissect it. We want you to figure out how its brain works." And you worked on that, and then they said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna release this. We're gonna." siphon some information to some people in the media and we're going to disclose what you've found here. Um, but we're not going to allow anyone to talk to you. No one's ever going to ask you. We're just going to talk about you and your work. Is that cool? Like, would that ever happen? Yeah. What can you, can you, well, let me put it this way. Could you think of a good reason that that would happen? Sure. Uh, it, it's something related very closely to national security. And then, uh, honestly, if I did start to play out, I'd be in trouble. Okay? Uh, and so I don't know if this is a secret program, but there's sure a lot of people talking about it. And there's secret materials and whatnot, and there's certainly a lot of people telling you, uh, we've got them. That's interesting. And they don't seem to suffer any repercussions. Um, that's rather striking. But, yes, you can do classified research. Uh, when I was at uh, Loyola University of Chicago as a grad student, uh, we actually could not. The university policy was not to allow us to do anything that would be top secret or classified. We could work for the federal agencies, but it had to be open research. It had to be freely publishable. And uh, universities will set their own 
um, policies. But I think our dean would have said, no, you want to work on something classified? That's why we have MIT go there. Jack, so let we're, me... we're about publication. You know, that's, that's, the, that's what I worked with. That's what I did. Jack, uh, you've, you've been hanging around ufology for way, way too long. <laughs> you, you've seen all this <laughs> crap before. Let me ask you, can you think of a reason that they would have something real to disclose, some real top-secret thing, uh, that they're, they're funneling out in drips and drabs like this through bullshitty people and through nonsense stories? Uh, what comes to mind here is even Diana Pasulka, who prior to her book release, which I've never read, mainly because I know this story, I was at the Esalen Institute giving a talk, and to most of the people in the room, uh, they had been there the year, I think it was the year prior when Diana Pasulka was there. And she was there with one of her two dudes who brought her into a desert and showed her alien wreckage. And they brought with them, I can't remember if it was a piece of wreckage or a replica of the piece of wreckage, but they passed it around and everyone got to look at this. And to a person, I mean, 100% of the people that I talked to who were there said that the thing that they were looking at looked like nothing and that the guy that was with her, they didn't trust him. There was something, in other words, they thought, I mean, one of them even said, you know, we kind of just thought she was being led around by her nose by these people that she believed what was going on, but that it wasn't true. And could you think of a reason to do that to Diana Pasolka, to a college professor, to shine the spotlight on this stuff if the thing that you're shining the light on is a hoax? Well, from a, a, an intelligence community perspective, I, I could tell you that there are circumstances where research that was funded by the CIA and uh, was later known to have to do with MKUltra and their search for a Manchurian candidate, so to speak, someone that you could program to do things that the person wouldn't know they're doing them, wouldn't know they had been programmed and uh uh, a human robot you have here. Some of that was uh, published um, by people like Charles Geschichter at the uh, Geschichter Fund in, in Washington um, and uh, Martin Ornay, a, a highly respected hypnosis expert, if such a thing could exist. He, he at least was as expert as anybody on it. And so we, we could question in hindsight, why was this stuff being published that would suggest strides were being made that perhaps global adversary defense analysts, intelligence analysts, say, in the Soviet Union, might could look at and read between the lines and have understandings from some of their hidden sources what they were looking at uh, and, and would, would just be confused about how uh, much 
um, progress the, these psychologists and chemists were making and how much wa was just theater. And in hindsight, we, we tend to think, at least the historic record suggests, that, that, they were, that it was a very hit and miss type of uh, uh, research, that people are, are altogether different uh, with suggestibility for subconscious and, and the use of drugs and things. And so that it didn't really work. But to go back and look at some of the 1950s and 1960s era research that was published, uh, of of course, uh, doctors and people on on projects pre present their their research as if it's important and groundbreaking. So I, I think those are maybe some of the things we we can look back at. Personally, I've questioned from the beginning if the ATIP was a project that was designed to identify aerial threats, uh, be them UFOs, UAP, whatever you want to call them, advanced technology, be it Russian, Chinese, or any other kind. I cannot find a feasible explanation uh, for why you would put a counterintelligence professional with minimal scientific training and uh, minimal air traffic training that by his own, uh, Elizondo I'm talking about, by his own description was working at Guantanamo Bay at, at the time that this began to take shape or was taking shape and happening. I don't know why you would empower such a project to him. It would seem to me like you'd want scientists and uh, aviation experts and people like that, but well, yeah, it, it depends on what you're really doing, I guess. I mean, I, I look at all this stuff and I'm thinking... <laughs> <laughs> there is a story that's being formed here that you can like at least one that I can decipher through who they're choosing and not choosing and what they're choosing to talk about, which is like, let's go back to Corbell. So he comes out with a Bob attached to Bob Lazar's hip. He's, he's a practically a, you know, practically his mouthpiece for a couple of years. Would you funnel your footage to that guy? Would you trust that guy to, unless, unless, you wanted the public to equate your authentic footage with Bob Lazar. That's the only reason you would do that is for people to have the, like the memory of like, Oh, right. Bob Lazar, his alien shtick, this, it all gets back to like sort of telling us we have these materials, even though the materials that have been vetted haven't panned out. Uh, just trust us. We have these alien materials. It all goes into like, remembering that story of Bob Lazar, Area 51, Roswell, all that stuff, but funneling it over to, we'll take it from here. As if the government has stepped in and said, we're changing it to UAP. Uh, it's now, we've got this. It's real, and we've got this. I don't know why they're doing that, but it does seem to be that that's the way it's going. In fact, there was a, a show, God, I think it's on the Discovery Network, or one of those, that I watched a few episodes of, which is hilarious, uh, a UFO show. I, I can't remember what it's called, though. It might be called Contact or something. But 
it's basically it's a group of military people who you've never heard of and like one is like a special ops marine kind of guy and there's a doctor and you know all these people and it's set up like mission impossible style you know the guy's standing around a bank of computers barking orders to everyone go look at go interview these people in argentina about this thing they saw okay now go up the mountain and try to find the location and see if you can you know it's all this uh, Dungeons and Dragons for adults stuff, but now the army is in charge of it. The military is in charge of it. It's official, but it's still crap. This is the thing I don't get. So, in other words, the story is to me is like, please identify what we're about to tell you with a straight face with this mythology that has been built up since the eighties. Uh, we're just going to do an inference here. We're not going to out and out say that's what's going on. What we're going to say is, um, it, whatever it is, is happening. <laughs> the unidentified thing is there, and we must take it seriously, and we're in charge of it. So you're no longer going to see uh, Steve Bassett lobbying Congress or whatever. Like, all those people are irre- made irrelevant in one foul swoop. They want you to identify with the ufological core stories, but they don't want you to look to those people. They want you to look to the military. And we haven't figured out why that is yet because they haven't gotten further in the story than this with us. But that's what I see so far. And I can't for the life of me figure out why, because it doesn't seem to me that those stories are real. It doesn't seem to me that any of even the evidence they've put forth is spectacular. I mean, it's more grainy footage. There's one piece of footage of what we are told is something going into the water uh, but I don't see it going into the water. I've looked at that footage a number of times, and what I see is, like, a blip, and then, like, there's no splash, really. There's no... <laughs> it's just there, and then it's not there, and we're told it went into the water, unless, you know, my eye is tricking me. And then we're told it showed up somewhere else in the sky. But how do you know that was the same object? How do you even know it was an object? How do I know any of this stuff? Why am I to believe these people who have told us for decades that none of this shit is real? All of a sudden it is real. And, and as, you know, proof, believe our, you know, train circus monkey, Alessandro, who doesn't, who is unqualified to even speak publicly and believe this wreckage that turns out to be bunk, right? Like all of this turns out to be bunk. And so, but they're still doing it. And that's the frustrating part is like, I cannot for the life of me figure out what this is unless they've just plain decided, you know what? Too many lunatics believe in QAnon. I think we can win them over and then we can control the public dialogue (laughs) through UFO mythology instead of QAnon ufology. That's the only thing. But would they have thought that in 2017? I don't know. (laughs) I think QAnon hadn't quite hit yet, but... I think um, that show reminds me of, of one uh, from the History Channel, Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation. Uh, I don't know if that's the one or not, but um, I would say anything from an entertainment venue, you have to be really, really skeptical of what, are you seeing anything authentic? Are these the facts? Or is it just kind of uh, entertainment uh, built on the, the myth and the lore and uh, the stories that people know and love? So uh, I, I, I agree. You've got so many agendas layered on top of each other. The pot is just boiling, and it's really hard to, uh, to get a bead on it. But um, Jack said something very interesting. I, I had, I've 
just gotten frustrated with this and just kind of tuned it out for a while. But um, he did an interview on uh, Parallax, Parallax Views. Is that the correct? Yeah. It, yeah, it, it was. I encourage everyone to listen to it. This is a really good interview. And the, the host, oh, I can't remember his name now. J.G. Michael. Yeah. He was outstanding. This must be an area of interest. He was very well informed. So I, I think people would be um, well served to go ahead and listen to that. But if I recall right, correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, that I, I think that you mentioned that some of the things, some of the retrieved items or whatnot, have actually been turned out to be what's known commonly as arts parts. That's that correct. Yeah. And so here we are. Uh, you know, we have Mr. Elizondo and others associated with the program, the Pentagon program, who firmly believe that the stuff has been collected. And it's not at all linked to the, the videos that we're seeing, the military program at all. It's something other. And so you know, I don't think any of that evidence has passed muster anywhere at any time. That's interesting in and of itself. Yeah, the, the supposed exotic materials are extremely dubious. And at one point, Mr. Bigelow stated on the record during an in interview that he's never been in possession of anything at any building in Vegas, as was described in, in the Times article. So there, there's a lot of conflicting reports. But Jeremy, when you said uh, about Corbell and and the leaks, that you know, would you go to him if you were the Navy? I, I mean, it, it's it's just dumbfounding the way that if you get intoxicated by the disclosure aura that somehow this can be uh, spun to make sense when uh, I, I kind of like to try to put some kind of analogy to try to kind of shake people by the shoulders and, and say, you know, like it would have been really cool if Edward, Snort, uh, Edward Snowden had reached out to the UFO trail instead of the Guardian, but for whatever reasons, he went with the Guardian. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, can we, what are we even talking about here? You know? Yeah, and what's really doubly frustrating is, why isn't anyone in the mainstream, or are they, and I just haven't noticed, why aren't they asking these questions? 60 Minutes, of course, did a big old love story about all of this. I don't even know if they had a skeptic on that thing. I don't know if they had done any research to try to find out if any of the claims were correct. It just seemed to be a, a big, you know... Hey, look at all this love and light release party for the for these people. I don't know. I, <laughs> like, I, is I, everyone I, in on this and just not us, <laughs> including like <laughs> Shermer and these people? Like, is everyone in a room together and they're like, "All right, all right, everyone, April Fools on America and the world." Let's just let's just say <laughs> let's just inference. Let's just imply we know something about this stuff and release some stuff and just screw with people. There's <laughs> there's no end game. 
I mean, it's so weird to me. Like, even this TV show I was talking about, there was an episode where they, like, have to meet somebody clandestinely on a rooftop for no apparent reason because it just makes for good television. And that person has a lot to tell them about UFOs, and it it turns out to be Richard Doty. Richard Doty, everyone. And so Richard Doty starts saying, you know, we know more than we're telling, even now, blah, blah, blah. And one of the people in the group says something along the lines of, well, but you've... You, you're a disinf- you've been a disinformation agent, so you've lied to everyone in the past. How do we know we can trust you? And he says, you don't. But you should, because... <laughs> it's like... This time. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, this is the one. But the fact that they're trotting these people out still, you know? Even in this new recontextualized, the military's got this uh, facade, they're still trotting out the same old story makers, and again, I outside of like it just seems a long way to go for military spending. It seems a long like a long shot thing to do just for that. There's got to be something else, and yet nothing makes sense except that we live in crazy times, and maybe just crazy people are in charge of this shit, and it really is Dungeons and Dragons for people. I don't know. I'm willing to accept that as an answer that people in the intelligence community are unintelligent. I'm willing to With accept a lot that. of these stories as it. It seems like they they come out like the writer will come out and you like read this story and it's like, this is pretty impressive. This is pretty convincing. And then you look a little closer and it's like sources close to the Pentagon, sources um, familiar with the ATIP. And, and then I started over the past few years looking at those stories with an eye of could every one of these people have been Christopher Mellon or Lou Elizondo or Eric Davis <laughs> or Hal Putoff? And of course they could. And I came to very much think that, that they were. And that's kind of back to like you're saying with the Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp uh group that we we literally have a handful of people that have pretty much accounted for the whole mythology and an even smaller group of people such as Robert Bigelow that have funded it and uh ha- have had a significant role in the people that ended up uh, writing books and and talking on these these uh, dubious these dubious documentaries and these shows and as I just my own personal some of my own work in the the past several years as I worked through various stories long before a tip I, I came across one about a, a group in Pennsylvania that uh, this lady that seemed sincere enough had, had seen a sighting or, or did seem sincere. I had no reason to, to doubt her. And as I go through this and th- this group of what seems like a lot of people with, with a big story starts getting um, streamlined down to okay, what's the name of the lab that did the research on the tree samples and the soil samples? And we start getting down to brass tacks. 
and uh, the trail led to Linda Moulton Howe, turned it over to Left 11 Good and Nancy Talbot and that group that was interested in Vandenbroek and the crop circles and all that. And, and it's like, was there not another lab in the whole nation that, that could take a look at, at this <laughs> su supposed debris? And it would happen again and again and again. And when people start not wanting to tell who the source is, not wanting to name the lab, you can almost guarantee there's a Richard Doty on a rooftop in the dark somewhere in this field. <laughs> well, as we wrap up here, uh, maybe, Tyler, you could take this first. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe this is an unfair question because we, we haven't seen it yet to know. But is, is there any, any sign that we should look for as we're going forward with this media stuff that anything could be true or, you know, probably is true in this. Um, you know, as we talk about all the things that don't ring true, is there anything about it that does uh, ring true or that we should look for to go, okay, this is now we're not being lied to anymore. Is it even possible to do that? I would uh, emphasize the, um, the, uh, so-called recovered pieces. Uh, if there's anything authentic, I would think that um, any of the people uh, in within the Pentagon who wanted this to be documented as true and important would bring those front and center. And we just can't seem to to get that done. Um, but I'll I'll just tell you that uh, for people that are are new to the the area and been drawn in by the the New York Times articles and, and whatever we have now, that body of work, a true hallmark of ufology is that the Nobel Prize is avoided like the plague. So here you are. You're a scientist, Eric Davis. You're millimeters away from the most remarkable discovery ever. And, oh, yeah, it's classified. Can't do anything about it. Seriously. Somebody can't do anything about this. But these are, according to, to uh, Dr. Davis, uh, not of this earth. Or we couldn't make them. I forget how we put it. Off-world. Yeah. Off-world. Alien origin. This would be a truly, truly remarkable discovery. And if you want to think of a way to get money to flow into your program, that would be it, in my estimation. But yet we can never get this done. And that's what I would say is that as you start to look for ufology, it's always like, yeah, I know uh, um, basically somebody who's a hybrid or I am a hybrid or I have this part or whatnot. And you can never bring it home. The Nobel will never be won by these people. That's just amazing. I got to say, Tyler, and thank you for that, because that's that's one of your go-to lines over the years. And I got to say, oh, yeah. that has been, I mean, I have my own blind spots in all of this, too, you know? And that was one of them. And what, the first time you ever said that to me, I mean, it was a revelation. And so I thank you. I want everyone to really take that to heart, that the amount of times you've seen somebody claim to have physical evidence and physical evidence that they were willing to examine or going to get examined in this or any other paranormal field. And just keep those words in mind when they don't <laughs> or when they don't do enough 
they they just don't seem to want the Nobel Prize for the greatest uh, discovery uh, in recent years or perhaps of all time. Isn't that weird? I, I had never thought of that until you said it, but yeah, that's that is a great way to look at it. I I appreciate that, uh, Jack Brewer. You could take that same analogy works for the the people that claim that they are working for disclosure but are bound by these NDAs, uh, these non-disclosure agreements, these security oaths, are demanding the powers that be release the information that they're aware of but they don't release because they're high in integrity. How's that work? How does it work, Jack? You know, like, <laughs> like you know, well, I, I can't tell you about that, but it, it would sure be profound if I could. You can take my word for it. And, you know, as I've said a number of places, there are attorneys that specialize in whistleblower law, that that's what they do, that's what their firms are about, national security issues, and we don't see these these guys reaching out to them, we don't see them get represented by these guys, we don't see them uh, presenting their material, getting it out in a way that, that would make sense, um, which is kind of back to the joke I made about Snowden coming to the UFO trail. Uh, why would you go to, to Leslie Kane? And some people make the argument, well, because she'll listen and she'll this and she'll that. And people that make that argument, in my uh, experience, are unaware of her credulous history in this genre. And um, no, we shouldn't dismiss someone out of hand for past mistakes or because they've uh, jumped on a story with both feet that turned out to be a hoax, which she has. Um, that alone would not mean that we should not review her next story. But when we do review that story, and it, it's full of assertions that cannot be established as fact, that is more than enough reason to, to question why people would go to her in the first place instead of experienced science journalists, national security journalists that are going to throw the hardball questions at them that if you really wanted help getting a story out into the open, you would embrace those questions and, and want the reputation and the investigative skills that come with a journalist like that. That's yeah. my take. Anyway. Well, right. And so in short, what Jack's saying is unless Ronan Farrow's in control of this, <laughs> don't read it. Right. Like, like why wouldn't you go to Ronan Farrow with, with <laughs> why Leslie Kane? He would hear you out. Right. If it were real. I don't know that Jack's saying that, but I'm saying that like, yeah, uh, there are journalists out there, right? And they, they do, uh, you know, investigate. There work. are. <laughs> they, I, I have a group that uh, I feel are reputable and uh, write for 
recognized national magazines. Some of them have, have been on the national security beat for years that, that work with uh, um, science groups. Um, the name escapes me at the moment, but um, there's a couple of them that uh, um, are, are willing to um, take a look when I come up with something and, and I give it to them and say, what do you think of this? Um, here, here's the chain of custody. What do you think this means? And they, they're completely willing to look it over because that is what they're interested in, our FOIA documents and um, chain of custody. They're not interested in um, so, some... Uh, um, website called Mystery Wire posts something that doesn't have a chain of, of custody like, like that. They just don't even care about stuff like that. And there's certainly an argument to be made. Huh. Well, I think uh, we're about at the end of our time here. Um, but <laughs> it's so funny because I think like I wonder it, on the surface, it looks like if anything could have pulled Jeff Ritzman back into ufology and caring about this stuff uh this might have been it I mean, certainly people would have been coming to him and asking him what do you think about the footage you know and all of this but do either of you think that jeff would have just ignored all of this <laughs> and just been like nah i'm out or do you think it would have drawn him back in i'm just curious i i think it might have drawn him back in and uh, uh because he's got a good nose for uh, a story and uh I think he would recognize it. And, and I would go back, uh, you know, the, one of the things that are striking about uh, the whole body of work that, that Blumenthal and Kane and, and others have contributed to is that um, there's a lot of reporters out there who are really solid, really strong. And uh, a lot of people who are excellent skeptics, Keith Clark comes to mind to me right away. You're telling me they don't know what side it's buttered on? that they can't recognize a dynamite story and with solid leads to follow, and they're too disinterested to follow it, that they won't call Bigelow. I mean, they probably, the poor man was probably besieged. And I have a feeling that a lot of people may not have recognized what, you know, the story or had never heard of Lou Elizondo or UAPs, but they could sure read a New York Times article and recognize like, oh, maybe I should look into that. Because a lot of times reporting is mirrored by other places who then they burrow into it. And after all this time, we're not seeing a lot of clarification, you know, and additional reporting. I, I think that's telling. Yeah, I mean, right. So any big mainstream story, Russiagate or whatever uh, that we've seen in recent years, gets picked up and covered by every paper. Um, if it's real, if there's teeth to it. Uh, so, well, maybe we'll just end on this for Jack. Um, the fact that that hasn't happened does that tell us that other reporters aren't touching this on purpose or does it not tell us anything that at all? I mean, could they just simply be ignoring it because they're ignoring it or not care because they don't care? I, I think it probably tells us a few things. I think one of them is that they haven't seen anything um, 
particularly remarkable enough to make them change whatever they're working on, uh, whatever their their net sec beat might currently be. I agree with Tyler that Keith Clore does do a good job of uh, putting a, an eye on the media and how the media has been credulous about this story, those that have picked it up. Sarah Scholes has done a good job with it. The group that the name uh, I couldn't think of a couple minutes ago is the Federation of American Scientists. They they are always willing to look at documents and FOIA situations. And uh, you know, I've been a big fan of Sharon Weinberger and her her work. Like uh, Imaginary Weapons was a book she did that I thought was fascinating about the Pentagon and uh, DARPA's you know, quest for uh, what some might call crazy weapons. You know, they're the mad scientists of the the uh, defense world, and uh, those kind of people would be completely willing to to take a legit story that that the person is willing to be vetted and uh, bring something to the table more than cool stories that they just want to you know, sit at a restaurant table and tell. And I, so I, I think it, it tells us a lot of different things, Jeremy. And um, one of them is that uh, they, they've got to come up with more than, than, than just stories. And I think that's one of the reasons they don't go to these journalists. Uh, some of the guys, uh, the team at Warzone has done a good job too with uh, under Tyler Rogaway and some of his writers have done a good job of getting actual FOIA documents about what seem to be drone incursions and um, uh, the um, evolution of electronic warfare that uh, almost certainly plays a role in uh, these latest reports, as well as UFO stories in general about spoofing radar and um, confusing radar operators and pilots, it almost certainly plays a role in it. But uh, I really wish you luck with relaunching Paratopia. Uh, I, I don't know. From my point of view, Jeff never really did let it go. He was just always uh, between projects or headed to another project. Uh, I, I think he would certainly have at least an interest in um, the human aspect of what people are doing with this latest uh, run at Disclosure. Okay, fair enough. Well, gentlemen, thank you for helping us uh, kick off this relaunch. Um, Jack Brewer, you, of course, have uh, the UFO Trail. Tell us where we can find that if anyone wants to hear more of Jack's takes on this stuff and his own research. Um, and you've got a new book coming out at some point in the near future, and people can uh, keep up with you. Where Where is that? I do. Um, it's a regular old Google blog, the UFO Trail. It's ufotrail.blogspot.com, and you can pretty much figure out everything about me there. I'm over on Twitter at the UFO Trail, and my second book, Wayward Sons, NICAP and the IC, 
uh, just became available for pre-order as an ebook, and uh, it will be dropping August 21st, and the paperback will be available about the same time. And it's an exploration of, uh, as the name suggests, uh, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and the Intelligence Community. So it's a story of uh, CIA and ufology games in the 1950s and 1960s. Cool. Can't wait to read that. Um, Nonfiction story. Tyler, you, uh, you, you're around. <laughs> Tyler's retired, yeah. but you also have a blog, and uh, it is not necessarily on this stuff, but it is, um, it is of interest to, uh, well, to me at least, and and hopefully to others. Tell us about your blog and and where they can find it. It's uh, a WordPress b- blog, and uh, it's uh, synthetic genetic Shakespeare's. Uh, so if you just search that, you'll be able to find it. But it, it's about. Um, Topics arising, uh, mostly science and technology. Uh, it's not journalism, and it's not science cheerleading. So um, there's uh, a lot of questions that I like to ask. That's about it. Low profile is that. Other than that, you're feeding the roadrunners. You got it. Okay, good. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Whew, you probably need a break after that, right? Nope. Let's get to the roundtable. Well, here we are in yet another Paratopia roundtable, except uh, once again without the Jeff. So I want to thank everyone for um, coming here. And um, I guess uh, I, I don't know what to do here. Go around. We'll see. Everyone say your name, however you want to be announced. That way I'm not giving away last names of people who are in witness protection program or something. Which is all of us. Right. That's Rob. Yeah. (laughs) I will say Rob Beck because Rob Beck is with Erie Radio and uh, Uh. and actually Erie Radio, um, I'm keeping in all the commercials and everything. So Erie Radio is like a lot of it's about I would say one fourth of uh, Peritopia is Erie Radio commercials. So Uh. (laughs) you're really an integral part of the show. (laughs) We used to have the full Peritopia commercial on, on Erie. Nice. Um, and then there is, uh, there's Colin. Colin, hi. Uh, hi, I'm Colin Keris. Um, I'm just a sort of persona non grata. I just sort of float around. I did, I was on Paratopia back in the day. I did a few podcasts with The Farm, if anybody knows that show, maybe not last year, but yeah, I'm, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> and there's Anne. Hello, Anne. Yes, hi. Yes, my name is Anne Longmore Etheridge. Um, listened to the show for as long as it was on, and uh, I'm kind of a professional uh, paranormal lurker here. Um, I've been involved in the paranormal for just about my entire life in one way or another. So, okay. Paratopia was always one of my favorite shows. Ah, well, cool. And then there is Soraya, who's yeah. who was named by Cthulhu. Is that correct? <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I host Where Did the Road Go? That's right. You do. <laughs> um, hey, if you want to get me some commercials, maybe <laughs> maybe I can have you compete with Erie Radio for that uh, one-fourth of sure. the Paratopia slot. So, listen, <laughs> uh, I, I guess maybe where we should begin with this is like, 
I don't, I don't really know. I, I, it's just odd to me that, that we're now living in a time where, um, in some odd way, the mainstream, well, science through Abby Loeb at Harvard and, of course, the military <laughs> through the, the Navy are, um, taking U- UFOs seriously and trying to change the name to UAP and or pretending to, um, to get military dollars. One of the two. Yeah. Well, Avi Loeb, I think, takes it seriously. I don't know if you saw this, that, you know, I th- what is he, an astronomer who yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. wants to do, like, smart telescopes that emulate the human eye or something? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but apparently he's unaware that we have Google Earth, so that <laughs> that technology exists. <laughs> uh, but anyway, good luck to him. Um, so uh, clearly the mainstream uh, hasn't really been punctured by... Um, paratopia type thinking, which is, you know, essentially this is high strangeness. It's personal. It really doesn't have to do with nuts and bolts stuff per se, even though that element of it exists. It's not all about that. Um, do you think that it's different in ufology? Like, like after you stopped listening to paratopia or, or Soraya in your case, as you started doing your own show, did you, did you find that people, we're more receptive to the idea that this isn't nuts and boltsy stuff, even though it hasn't caught on the, in the mainstream and anyone can take that. Well, I, I think with my show, I mean, I don't cater to the, the nuts and bolts hypothesis. So more or less the majority of people listening to my show don't have a problem with not, you know, with the, the more high strangeness level of stuff. Yeah. And I don't bring on a lot of ETH people, honestly. Okay. I yeah, find it. I, uh, I listen oh, to quite a bit myself. Sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. I was going to say I listen to Soraya's show quite a bit myself, and um, I have never really ascribed to the nuts and bolts um, theory of all of this. I think that that all manners of paranormal experience are highly personal and often are only meant for the person receiving them. Um, which may explain why people can see things that others can't, and and even if they're standing side by side. So um, I think the prevalence of people believing in the um, high strangeness hypothesis is is growing exponentially. And, um, you know, shows like Soraya's and certainly Paratopia uh, really have, I think, added to, you know, the expansion of people's awareness that there's a lot more to this than we think there is you wanted to say yeah I, it's kind of two things one it, i found it humorous that uh you know the the military and others were coming forward and trying to you know say oh yeah that's this UFOs, right that's that's what they are and your UAPs or whatever and it's like and and nobody cared yeah <laughs> the general public was uh <clears throat> just kind of like a sigh of indifference from a lot of areas which i thought was interesting it's like here's another layer to the show which really, I think that's all it is. It's just another layer to the show and the big show. And everybody just was so preoccupied that nobody cared. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, I think it's we're in, a, we're in a definite lull in people caring about the paranormal right now. That's just my feeling. I, I think everybody's grounded with real-world problems as much as there is a real world to, to deal with. Or at least they want to perceive it that way. So, 
I think cryptids right now are the big thing more than anything. Yeah. Bigfoot is absolutely huge right now. The biggest foot of them all. (laughs) Really? Uh, Hey, Colin, you you live in Scotland? Yes. So I I think with regards to that, I think a lot of us are guilty of magical thinking, right? And this is something uh, I remember... We did an, uh, I did an interview with you and Jeff back in the day, which didn't get broadcast, where we talked a lot about chaos magic. And with regards to thinking about what would a rationalist skeptic who demands empirical evidence about these sort of things demand, like, well, there's no actual proof of this stuff. It's all just sort of vague and, you know, we can't scientif- science cannot define this thing. So I'll tell a very brief story. So a few days ago, uh, I live in central Scotland at the moment because I was in Edinburgh, uh, but I got uh, made redundant. So I'm back in my hometown, essentially. So I was wandering through the woods, which I used to walk through when I was going to school. And I stopped for a moment uh, and just had a little sit down, looking out over my town, looking over the sky uh, and the birds and everything. And then I saw some lights on the horizon just darting about moving around like silvery discs and thought, hang on a minute, have UFOs just come out for me? Are those UFOs? And for about two, for a minute and a half, I thought there was an army of UFOs that had just come out to say hello to me. But then I thought, oh no, they're just birds. So that was my magical thinking moment. <laughs> and I, I, you know, it's just, I was looking out over the old brewery and glassworks where my dad used to work uh, so, I mean, I got my last job through doing chaos magic. I work at a farm, well, at a cafe on the farm in the middle of nowhere. So I'm finding myself increasingly connected to the earth. And I think it is just that thing. It's like, I know Jeff spoke about this, about how, you know, what when you describe this stuff to people, you sound like a maniac. You sound like a crazy person. But well, well, let me ask you, do you do you sound like a maniac in, in Scotland? Like, is do you get the sense that that the uh, air around this stuff is different or the same as the U.S.? Do they care that the military here has started to pretend to take it seriously or does? Well, I actually live in, still right in the heart of the Bonnie Bridge Triangle, which in the 90s was supposedly the the world UFO hotspot slash window area. Yeah. And there's a Scottish, people might know there's a Scottish UFO researcher called Malcolm Robinson He's written a lot of books about stuff happening in Scotland and the UK. And apparently, I think he lives like 10 minutes walk away from where I am now. And he's also written about the Socky Poltergeist, which is a really uh, strong sort of poltergeist incident, similar to like the Enfield poltergeist incident that happened. And my mum used to teach at the school where that apparently all happened, although I think it was at a different venue. So, yeah, there's definitely stuff that happens here. and But at the same time, yeah, I think culture has not moved on as of yet, you know. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, you see these things covered if you're on the internet will be coming up. Oh, proof of UFO is coming out soon. And it's just like yet another nonsense article. But is it the so same? Is know. it the same? Like, I don't know. It, it, like, okay, I, I guess, you know, in America, we think everything revolves around us. So when our military starts to take it seriously, does Scotland take note? Or is it just like here where it's like shrug? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, I think it's essentially the shrug is still happening over here, you know. I mean, I, we, it is that, that sort of uh, 
focus on particular, you know, like, you're right, I think. I think America does tend to focus on itself and how all UFO things happen in America. But at the same time, obviously, there's stuff going on all over the place. Right. And I don't know. It's just nothing seems to be moving forward. You have all these sort of fakers and charlatans still flying the sort of, you know, the dark fleet stuff, if anybody knows that. I don't even want to name the people involved in prevaricating all of this nonsense. I don't know what that is. You know, is. The, whole, the, whole, the whole Star Trek style David Wilcock and oh, Corey Good. Oh. All right, I just had to name them, sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Those guys. <laughs> you know, I mean, well, yeah, it's also been uh, the with the... Uh, I mean, we've had to deal with video fakery for years, but now it's an art form. Yes. So video is useless. Audio is really useless anymore. The, you can't trust any evidence unless you see it with your own eyes, practically. And that's that's kind of. Uh, I think there's maybe maybe that's good. I, I I deal with a large variety of people because I do computer repair, and one of the things I find is that a lot of people are more open to this because they see it on TV. They watch Ancient Aliens, they watch Ghost Hunters or Ghost Adventures or whatever. And I think it makes it more acceptable to them, even if it's junk TV. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah. like, is is the reason that, um, you know, they're they're accepting of of the obvious, the literal, the alien, the ghost. Right. But right. An, like for and uh, you said that you've had experiences and, and you said that you uh, interpret more along the lines of high strangeness and we don't know what this is and all of that. Um, do you think exactly, that, yeah. do you think that that's because you're an experiencer? Like, do you think if you weren't an experiencer and you watched ancient aliens, you would think, Oh, that must answer it. Oh, well, I don't think if I watched ancient aliens necessarily. Well, yeah. Okay. Would, but, <laughs> um, I, I, ha- I must say that, that um, from my opinion, I feel like, one of the reasons why everybody just kind of shrugged at the whole announcement about, you know, flying saucers are real is because a lot of people that I'm aware of, even who are not interested in the field, sort of already kind of accepted that anyway. Um, especially the, the, my, my uh, children's generation, they're in their, their 20s. They kind of shrugged because, like, for them, it was a real no-duh moment. They had already sort of, Suss that out for themselves, and um, so there. I, I think maybe there wasn't a big reaction from a lot of people because the, they already knew that it was true. Um, so that's one thing. But yeah, I mean, if 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 I wasn't if I wasn't someone who had had a lifetime of interesting paranormal experiences, I I don't know. I think at this point, I would have to just say, you know, there's so there's so many. Um, uh, uh, witness encounters that are made public. People are not afraid to talk anymore the way they used to be. And I think that that also goes a long way towards just sort of normalizing it and everybody just sort of feeling, well, yeah, I mean, there's something to it. Even if we don't know exactly what it is, you know, there's just too many people that are saying, you know, things happen to them that make no sense for you to just turn away from them and you know, say they're crazy. I think it's a lot more widespread these days, definitely. Well, does anyone think that also, in addition to that, um, we've got just crazy fatigue because we went through whatever you feel about Trump. I don't know if there are any Trumpers on this call, but it was <laughs> it was four years of most people feeling like they were in a 
in a washing machine. Like it just complete lunacy that went into the QAnon stuff. And it's like at this point, you know, it is a circus. <laughs> like, do you think that played that was an element of it? I don't think it's been any. I think it was there before him, and it was there after. It's there after him. So, I mean, he was just another. He was a ringleader. He he could be somebody everybody could focus on. But ultimately, this shit's just no. But know, I'm talking about the fatigue. I mean, I think like there's a public fatigue, right? And yes, so when yeah. you come out during public fatigue and say, "Oh, by the way, UFOs are real," everyone's like, uh, "I'm I'm done." All this other crazy stuff going on, and then they're like, "Oh, and UFOs are real," and people are like, "Okay, whatever." Whatever, whatever. What's what's the latest on the pandemic? Yeah, because it's like emotional fatigue. Like, and I guess even for Trumpers and at this, you know, either way, like there's an emotional fatigue of either constantly feeling like you have to defend yourself or constantly feeling like you're under attack. Like everyone in this yeah, country feels like they're on one side of that or the other. And then the QAnon people actually, in the one sort of smart thing, were like, I think the UFO stuff is to take away from the QAnon stuff. And actually, I think maybe that was part of it. <laughs> it's like, how can we take these people who believe in this thing and cattle herd them over to this thing? <laughs> I, I wonder if that's not part of it. Does anyone think that that's a probability? I mean, it's always a possibility, but do you think that's an element of it? I think so. Good. I well, I, I, <laughs> There's one. <laughs> I think play the total innocent and say I don't think so. Okay. I, I don't. I, th- I think maybe... I mean, it, yeah, it could be, but I think what's more likely is just that the number of people who are seeing something is so exponentially grown that, you know, maybe they feel like they got to take the first step. And this is just a tiny one that could be easily be brushed away. Well, you it, know, the, the way that it was done made it so simple to just go, yeah, OK, whatever, and leave it if you just can't deal with it. Well, it is funny that, that, you know, as Rob was saying, you know, you can't trust footage anymore. And now they're coming forward to be like, well, you, you can trust our grainy footage. <laughs> here's here's <laughs> our grainy ass footage of the thing that we all see all the time. Remember the New Zealand, the New, the New Zealand prime minister, whatever she is, she, she, she had that famous speech she gave during the pandemic about don't trust anybody else, but you can trust us. Right. Everything we say is, is trustworthy and, <laughs> and that's legitimate. And I'm like, that is so in, in any other situation, everybody would be like, what the hell? <laughs> but, uh, you know, now we're just, everybody shrugs like, Oh, okay, whatever. So you trust you. We'll, we'll trust you. So Rob, are you, were, you were the geologist, right? You came on the show and talked about geology or. Yeah. And my background. That's your background. Has anything changed over the years? Has anything gotten, I don't know, more solidified or closer to an answer one way or another in terms of the relationship between, I don't know, crystals and rocks, granite and uh, paranormal phenomena. No, no I went to, I, I'll tell you what, I went to a, um, I went to a, a, one of the new age shows with that very thought in mind. I was going to interview all the people that were selling minerals and rocks and stuff with, you know, not, not the ones that were just selling it to sell it, but the ones who had, you know, the big charts of, of this mineral will do this for you. And this stone will do this for you. And, and I sat down with him, and I tried to be, you know, I mean, that's, that was our MO. We always tried to be very, uh, not, you know, just not condescending. It's just, just I'll hear you out. I'll hear what you have to say. And um, I asked him point blank. I'm like, how do you know that this crystal does this? Or how do you know that this provides this kind of relief or feeling or whatever? 
And like, well, that's and the answer I always got was the same. It was completely unverifiable. Well, that's just our experience. That's just what we know with it. And I'm like, that is not an answer. Right. You know, I could say, how do you know that that a chicken sandwich is better than a burger? I just know. I just know that chicken sandwiches are better. That's the exact same <laughs> damn thing. So yeah. that hasn't changed, in my opinion. It's it's a it's very much a believe or don't believe. It's 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 its own religion, and you know, if you believe that crystals help you, then you know, I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't. There's nothing to back you up. It's just like conspiracy theories. Everything. You, you basically, with crystals, I think it's an outline. Everything is an outline in that kind of field. And you either, you know, you uh, you have, with an outline, the problem between an outline and a finished manuscript is that you got to fill in a lot of holes if you got an outline. And I think that's what the bulk of that community does. They just fill in the holes with whatever sounds plausible. And, you know, maybe in one in a thousand, one in a million, they're right, but... They have no proof. They have no way to prove it. They have no way to test it. They have no way to, to retest it and verify it. So, well, you're what about go ahead. What, what about areas that have like large uh, deposits of granite and also seem to have a lot of weirdness around them? Have, have you seen any evidence? I have never that? encountered anything that verifies that. Okay. Uh, the for example, the entire other than the fact that you know people are weird in a lot of places you go, like Arkansas. Now, no offense to no offense to people from Arkansas. Uh, or southern Missouri, but you know they have they have their own bit of strangeness. I mean, where I'm from, we've got weird to sell people too. So no, 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 no harm, no foul in Arkansas. But think about the fact that uh, Atlanta sits on a giant hunk of granite. Uh, actually, most most of northern Georgia does. Most of uh, I mean the Ozarks, so uh, central Missouri, central and southern Missouri and northern Arkansas, giant pluton of granite. Uh, so I mean, they're just. I, I, I think I found the mo- a more interesting, if you want to talk about actual Earth phenomena, a more interesting map I saw was a map of disappearances of, of, of people disappearing in clusters, you know, like the uh, David Polites yeah. stuff with, uh, with karst topography, with karst systems, you know, where natural caves form. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a more interesting map to me, but... No, I've never had anything that I could connect granite with with anything high strangeness. I mean, it's 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 potassium feldspar, it's biotite, it's muscovite, and it's quartz. That's that's all it is. So you're saying it's a coincidence that Fred Flintstone worked at a granite quarry and then befriended an alien in later years? <laughs> uh, kazoo, I'm on. I'm kind of out on still. I haven't <laughs> narrowed right. down exactly where he's from. Well, Still working on. this kind of gets to, I don't know, a, a larger issue. Like, for instance, Jeff found a crystal of some sort in his yard. He didn't believe in crystals. Famously put it to his forehead and then later that night uh, saw a quote-unquote alien who just sort of popped into existence like you called me. Now, you could say that that's because... Jeff experiences such things or experienced such things, and yeah, so did. it's going to happen to him. And yeah. you could also say that the end, you know, I've experienced this. I'm sure other people on the call have experienced this. Once you say anything definite one way or the other, something pops up to go, are you sure? You know, Jeff likes yeah. to talk about that, and it's just that I've experienced. It's true. So 
you know, is there a, I'm wondering if there's an asterisk there about like, yeah, these things don't work, but if you're prone to high strangeness, it might for some reason, if you're a shaman, it might. Um, is it just the ritual? Is it just the ritual that helps yeah. focus you? Yeah. You know, the, I mean, cause I, I agree with you. Every, a lot of us, I would imagine a lot of people on this, in this call here, um, have had instances where when they focused on something or either been exposed to it or, you know, have called it or whatever, um, and focused on it, they get results of some kind, uh, you know, one way or another, whether it's a minor result or major result. But, uh, you know, it's, it's consider that the human mind is normally very distracted, especially, especially nowadays. It's, you know, tiny attention spans and, Easily distracted. I mean, it's like Ernest Borgnine in basketball said, uh, the great the great philosopher Ernest Borgnine <laughs> said that uh, the average attention span can be measured in nanoseconds. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think that it, anything that you can use, like shamans, for example, would use, they would use <clears throat> rituals, priests and stuff use rituals. Um, some use you know, a, a talisman or, or, you know, the, the stones, if you want to go that way, or, um, uh, and some use, um, mind expanding stuff like the ayahuasca for, for some South, South American and, and Central American, uh, shamanistics. Uh, but I think everything leads to the same place. It's, it's focusing your mind in a certain direction so that maybe you're a little bit more receptive to what's there that, you can't, that most people like, like uh, was said, most people can't see. Okay. Does anyone want to add anything before uh, I? Yeah. Um, so actually, I was looking at the last Facebook conversation I had with Jeremy from like years ago, and why I was I was actually on an early experience with you, and the idea I was pondering then was broadly the idea of the self abducting the self, or that the human race is its own abductor. And this is something that I was sort of relating to hauntology. I don't know if people know about that, which is like a weird academic theory, which is broad, uh, really about the idea of the past perpetually haunting the future throughout culture. And it's very difficult to explain, but just Google it. And yeah, I mean, look, when I was a kid, I saw this glowing person in my bedroom who immediately turned and looked at me and put me to sleep. And I had a weird psychedelic experience, which was very much like an ayahuasca experience, even though I've never done ayahuasca, uh, where I felt like I was dying and I was at the absolute outside edges of the universe. And there was this wall I had to go beyond. And there was these people in my room that were sort of glowing humans, like from Cocoon, who were repairing my brain and fixing stuff in my psychology. So, yeah, it's it's just it's just that thing of I sort of got to thinking that, again, based on listening to Paratopia and thinking about what Jeff was saying about how this whole sort of anomalous experience contact is part of some buried part of the human psyche that science has not of yet been able to explain. Right. Please tell me one of those glowing beings sounded like Brian Dennehy. I, I don't remember. No, they, they were talking in like machine code. It was like Terence McKenna oh, okay. chisel. Wait, oh, okay. so wait, were you? You were not on <laughs> any hallucinogens. Terence McKenna is another level. 
Well, I think Perfect. I got food poisoning. I think ah. I'd had some dodgy yogurt <laughs> because I didn't. Have, I didn't have refrigeration. Is there I any other kind of yogurt but dodgy yogurt? Come on, it I was just it normal does. yogurt <laughs> that's supposed to be good for your gut, but this one really wasn't. I don't think. <laughs> like it's already spoiled. How bad could it be? <laughs> and do you want to jump in here with anything? I don't want to leave you out. Yeah, I well. Um, I can't say that I've ever had any experience that I've had over the course of my life when I was in anything remotely like an altered state. Um, Things that happen to me tend to happen when I'm wide awake and fully there and not actively participating in any kind of psychedelics or anything. Um, uh, So my experience has really has always underscored for me the fact that um, I believe these experiences are are of a highly personal nature. And I know that everything that I remember, um, you know, Jeff talking about his experiences on Paratopia, for example, were they were very similar to mine. It was just like these things just kept happening and there was no stopping them no matter what state you were in. And there was no denying them either. So I guess for me, as somebody who has had these experiences and knows that I haven't been on anything that has made them, made them occur. You know, I can't, I, I, it's hard for me to not, um, it's, it's hard for me to buy into the fact that there isn't, that there is not something, a, an alternate reality. Some, something is trying to reach us from someplace else. Uh, that's, that's just from my life of experience where it takes me that there really is more than we know about. And some of that more is trying to punch through the veil to us. That's what I think. And did you ever feel a purpose out of that? Like a reason for it? Like, do they ever feel like this is why? I, I, I think for me, it has always felt like the purpose was, um, uh, what's the way that I can say this that doesn't sound um, hokey? You know, the the expansion of consciousness, mm-hmm. the expansion of understanding between different levels of consciousness. Um, I think that we're living in a, a universe where we have a lot of realities that could literally be piled up on top of each other and sometimes we're just seeing glimpses of, of other realities or we're being contacted by other realities or, uh, and it could even be a situation where, you know, we've got time acting as a vertical instead of a horizontal and, you know, things from the past and the future or, are somehow, you know, getting through to us here. I think there's, there's just tons of different explanations. I tend to actually not look for the explanation. I just tend to look at the experience or whatever it, it offers me and go from there. Although I do, having said all that, have a, a, a quite firm belief that, that there, there appears to be, um, you know, some sort of existence after we depart this level and, um, and that there may very well be other, you know, there might be other versions of us in alternate realities at the same time that we're existing here. I think it's all possible. I don't think any of it's proven, but 
all you can do is fall back on what you know has happened to you and that you can't deny. I think that with my experiences, I always felt that it was trying to teach me more about myself, but also sometimes that it was trying to explain to me a little more about what reality was. Yes, I agree completely. That's, that's a much more concise way of saying what I was trying to say, I think. I think you did fine. He just mansplained you. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll let him get away with it. <laughs> no, actually, I was just—I was just telling you my my perspective of it. Well, Sarai, I wanted to ask you because you'd said before that cryptids are are now all the rage, and it seems like the things we've been talking about, from alleged aliens to hallucinogenic trips, do have the common thread of for the experiencer of them seems to be something at least presenting as an outside intelligence that wants to tell you about you somehow wants you to get right with yourself first. And then maybe you have the right to ask, Hey, what's all this other stuff about? Um, but the person asking I would contend is not, is not the pinnacle. It, it would be, it would be like, you know, a grub in the cocoon asking about other butterflies when it's not a butterfly yet. And it's like, well, let's talk about you chewing out of the cocoon and being a butterfly. Then you'll know what butterflies are about. Do you, is is it the same thing? Do, do cryptids and Bigfoot and all that, do they have that same flavor of sort of self-help therapy or sessions going on ever? Or is it always just kind of whatever is out there is as it presents itself to be and there's nothing else to study? Well, the, the thing about it is it's it connects into, I mean – People don't generally just see a cryptid. They leave all the other stuff out. You know, you have UFOs with Bigfoot sightings. You have, I mean, they're all kind of interconnected. But as far as people seeing cryptids, uh, it doesn't seem to have that self-help sort of thing going on. It doesn't have, seem to have that deep sort of thing. But it might be the thing that wakes people up to having these other experiences at the same time. Yeah, I guess, yeah, maybe – I should have asked it that way too, which is like you see Bigfoot. Bigfoot isn't sitting you down by the campfire and having a chat about life, the universe, and everything. Maybe, but if you have a big, a shingle. if you have a Bigfoot a encounter, does it wake you up out of yourself in the same way that this stuff tends to? To where you're right, well, to where you're looking, but looking within, right? So, like, you can have an experience that wakes you up to, oh God, I've seen a UFO. Now I've got to go. Now I believe there's something else out there and I've got to go read about it, but it has no real internal, you know, there's no transformation that necessarily happens to a witness like that. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily just a cryptid that would do it. I think it's anything, but I think it's, I think it's in the same boat. It's, it's that shock to the system of, because, you know, I mean, not, not to go too deep, too deep in the weeds, but when I was younger, I had a, I had, I, you know, I, I died on a table, you know, in, in the hospital and was out for several minutes. And, and so that's an Indian story and anything like that, whether it be, it's that it's that shaking, shaking you out of your comfortable, as you put it, I think Jeremy, the little comfortable little cocoon, uh, that, that you exist in, that is, is your world. It's, it's, it's what you're, cause the brain is notorious and it likes to limit perception. One of the things I was taught when I was, when I was, um, a university was was a simple version of it, which is everyone thinks in two dimensions, or everyone sees things in two dimensions. That's as just a standard because the brain doesn't like to process more information than it has to. So we had to be trained to think in three dimensions. To think when you're looking at a rock face, you're not looking at a rock face. 
you're looking at a formation that could extend for 100 kilometers in any direction. Um, so it's it, but the brain eliminates that perception unless you focus on it because that's just extra processing space it doesn't want to spend. The brain's lazy. So I think if you work that in with taking reality as 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 we like to call it, you just any anybody living is you know living their own reality, taking that and shaking them and saying, okay, what well, you've been living this whole time, yeah, that's not really all of reality. That's just a fraction of it. And here's this. Like you said, here's a here's a Sasquatch sighting, or here's a UFO, or whatever, and it kicks you out of that space. And whether you want to retreat back to it and just run into that comfortable cocoon again, or whether you want to, uh, you know, explore it and say, "All right, what the hell's next?" That's that's your personal decision, and it's it's your personal journey. But do you think that that decision necessary? Do you think all roads necessarily lead lead inwards, or no? Leading to self-reflection, that sort of thing? Or, or? Yeah. I mean, do you think that you could have a cryptid sighting or a UFO sighting and not eventually have to confront yourself if, if yeah. you, oh, yeah. if you like, take up this yeah. journey of everything yeah. greater than me? Okay. Yeah, like I said, it could you could just run back into the cocoon. You could be like, oh, that's just a bizarre thing. And, I, and I've met people who have had weird experiences and never looked deeper into them. They just, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah, that weird thing happened. And then they continue just like they did. Right. It's like it's like it knocks at your door. You don't really answer, so they go, "All right, right." Rob, did you just gla- glaze over the fact that you had an NDE? Did I hear that right? Yeah, I had one back when I was about twenty-four. <laughs> and you were just going to throw that out there and not say anything about it. You're like just sort well, of coughing through. I had an NDE. Anyway, let me go well, on with. This is the thing. But yeah, I had, I had pneumonia real bad, so I had um, it, it basically killed me, and while I was in the hospital, so. I had going cardiac arrest twice, so I was out for, I think, a grand total of five minutes one time and three minutes the next. And did you, what was your experience? Am I allowed to ask? Oh, I mean, it's, it was, it was out of body. Definitely. It was most, it was very interesting in that regard. Well, what, let me ask you this. Let me put it this way. What was the emotionality of it? Was it an all loving sort of feeling? You want the the plain honest truth of it, it was, there was a, I, the easiest way I can explain it to, you know, it's the whole, it's the whole, if you, if you haven't necessarily gone through it, you don't necessarily know, mm-hmm. but it, the easiest way I've been able to explain it to people is there's that brief instant, which I feel like it's kind of a tearing where you feel like you're coming out of who you are, you know, and it's that, that frightened, I got to cling to who I am. I got to cling to existence. And then you're free of it. And you're like, Oh, well, yeah, this is what things are like. And then it's just, it's kind of a, eh, okay. And it's like accepting a new reality almost instantly. Mm. Uh, all loving, all all knowing. No, I don't think necessarily that, but it was just a different form of thinking of, of existence. It, did just it do anything for you long-term? Like, I'm thinking about, you know, my spiritual shenanigan stuff. Uh, you know, I did end up being blissed out guy for a while, and then I gave it up. <laughs> And then I came back. So I've, I know, like, I, I know what all of that is, but I'm not that anymore. Is there a same thing with a near, with a near death? Is it, you know, is yeah, there an experience so. that goes away over time or no? No, I think the, the doctor, one of my doctors that I dealt with, uh, when I was going through a checkup after I got out of the hospital was, uh, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, the whole incident and he's like, He's, he told me that statistically, 
uh, from medical research alone, there's a certain percentage of, of people that have an NDE uh, that are, uh, they'll have within, usually it's within six months to five years, a certain percentage of people that had an NDE would have a, a, a kind of a paradigm shift in how they view the world. Some you know, like religious people would become atheists. Atheists would become religious. You know, just it would be the, just a whole shift. But it said it's very much. It was very much up to the individual. And um, you know, some people didn't have anything happen at all. Uh, so, he's, but he said, yeah, a lot of people kind of go through a shift. And usually, if it's if it happened, it was a permanent change. At least as permanent as you know, like next 10, 15, 20 years. From from what I've heard, it's usually more of a spiritual rather than religious shift. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, one. Some would say one gets you the other. You know. Hmm. Yeah, you can, you can yeah. be religious and not spiritual very easily. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you can be spiritual without religion. So I mean, it seems like most people who have near near to lean toward that that spiritual side of things. Religion is just guidelines. Yeah. Uh, but you, but basically, and yeah, maybe I used terms that were not everybody's favorite. But um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you you go through a little shift, and I would say I would say I did, and my kind of uh, perception of you know of whatever of reality or the universe or life, the universe, and everything uh, did change, hmm. and it kept evolving. It's kept it's kept changing through the years, so I don't consider it as a negative. Does anyone here now that now that we all know we're all experiencers of something or other? Um, does anyone here not think that discernment is important when it comes to this stuff? Colin had started off talking about magical thinking and hoaxes and that, and I know plenty of people who talked about their alien encounters to me. Like this one person, all of our friendship until one day it came out that it was a dream, and she, her answer mm-hmm. is like, "Well, but Jeremy, you know." You know, dreams and, and and wake are just the same thing anyway. And it's like, no, actually, I don't know that. I, I believe there are certain dreams that are not just personal unconscious baggage, and there are some right. that are collective, and there are some that are a communication from something or someone. All, all of the above. And that's why you need discernment. But um, apparently I'm, I might be in the minority. Does anyone here not believe in discernment for this stuff? Um. So... Uh, with regards to, like I said before, I saw this glowing being when I was a kid, and then I saw these glowing beings about 10 years ago, and I had this, I, I didn't mention this before, but I sort of made this connection to, oh, this is the same thing. This is the same creature. This is the same being, the same intelligence. It's back to the future vibes. You know, it's like this thing that I'm encountering 10 years ago is the same thing I saw when I was about five. And it's sort of jumping back and forth and it's coming back to check on me to see that I'm all right on my passage through this thing we call life. And again, that's just a little bit of magical thinking. And maybe you need a little bit more discernment and a skeptic would say, well, that's just nonsense. You had a dream. But I've had very vivid dreams that stay with me and I've remembered the details of them and... Yeah, it's just, I think there's a there's a thing that comes out of our brain. And I, I like I said, I, I don't really think it's necessarily extraterrestrial beings traveling here in spaceships, but it could be. 
but that's not what I have experienced. I've experienced something that has been running through my life continually, uh, just just as a thing, as a vague, untouchable, unknowable thing that is still there and is still sort of lurking in the background. And I haven't had anything resembling a weird experience in years, but I still think about it deeply and it had a huge impact on me. Okay. So it's still there. And go ahead. Yeah, I have a story that kind of maybe touches on both aspects of it. Um, as far as the magical thinking part goes, uh, when I was uh, pregnant with my son back in the early 1990s, before that, I always felt as if he, the, the soul that became my son had been around me as a presence. And that I had known, just known instinctively, not by any outside source my entire life, that one day that I would, in fact, have a, a son. And so after he was born, um, he was about, I want to say he was about a month old. He was still so little that he could not hold his head up in any way. And we had one of those swings, I don't know if you've seen them, but you wind them up, at least you did then, you wound it up and it just swung the baby back and forth in this little swing seat and he was a very colicky, cranky baby and we had him in this little swing seat with his little, they're called donuts that you put around, like a little uh, little uh, pillow type thing that, that helps a, a newborn keep their head straight. And um, so he's in his little swing and he's swinging back and forth and for the very first time, he laughed, and he laughed like a little baby. And as my husband and I stood there watching him laughing, surprised that he was laughing at all because he was too young to, suddenly his laugh turned from a little baby to that of a full-grown adult man in front of myself and my husband. And he laughed for a maybe 10 to 15 seconds as a full-grown adult man. And then his voice changed back into a little incense and he stopped. So there on one side of, you know, is the magical thinking, me thinking that he's around me and that he's going to come back as my child. And then there's the total not magical thinking of two full-grown adults, not on any medication whatsoever, hearing a one-month-old baby laughing like a 60-year-old man. So that's the kind of like high strangeness that has followed me throughout my life and has just made me stop and go, you know, there's something to this. Maybe it's playing with me. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's trying to teach me something. Maybe it's not. But it's not just all one thing or the other. It's, I don't know. It, it sort of leaves me speechless. I still can't even explain that experience at all in any way. But because I had a witness, I know it really happened. Right. Uh-huh. Anyone? <laughs> okay, <laughs> then I'll jump in. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, I. that's... This is the problem, right? Like, uh, I, I look at this stuff and I go, what is the most... At this point in my life, I listen to all of these... Tales, and I think of my own tales, and I think, what is the most important thing to do with this? Um, because, well, for instance, um, there's the uh, abduction that I remember the beginning of, and sort of the middle piece of that I've talked about eight million times and written about 
but I'd never, but there are aspects of it that I haven't really thought about that I've just started thinking about. And I wonder, should I even bother? Is it worth thinking about? Like, uh, so here I'm talking about, I have a girlfriend next to me in, in bed on a mattress on the floor. I see a light. It wakes me up out the window. So I crawl over her and I pull back the shade and there's just this light. There's nothing there. And I look down at her and she seems to be asleep. So it's not bothering her. So, okay, fine. I roll over. Uh, and there are three little gray beings in tunics standing over me. And, um, my body reaction is terror and I scream as loud as I can, but nothing comes out. Like there's just no sound. And I got to thinking about this. Like I hadn't really thought about it before. The fact of no sound, the fact of she's out cold or whatever, but how is it that I rolled over and there are these beings that are all of a sudden just there? They didn't make a sound coming in. Nobody tripped over any clutter in my room to get in there. Uh, if they just, you know, materialized, there was no sound component to that. And when I screamed, it wasn't like just nothing came out like a muffled scream. It was like literally there was a vacuum of sound. <laughs> so is that a clue to something? Should I be latching onto that and going and searching around physics books for what that could possibly mean? Or does it not matter? Because it's never going to present an ending. There's no amount of evidence. This gets to the science thing, right? Of like repeatability and is this even a question for science? Or is it like the only useful thing you can get out of this is whatever you get out of it for you with a caveat that because people generally don't use discernment, what they're going to get out of it is going to be egomaniacal stuff. And it's actually going to make them narcissists more likely than than people who die to their sense of self, let's say. Uh, so it's even more of a like minute, like, like we think about um, the amount of people who have these experiences is uh, relatively small to the population. But what about the usefulness of it to even those people? Is that pool of people even smaller is there a point in trying to address it scientifically? I know there's a bunch of questions in there, but if anyone wants to take my ramblings and run, go for it. One, I would say that you were probably in an altered state of consciousness, so you weren't perceiving things normally, which might explain the silence. Um, as far as studying scientifically, it's not something you can easily repeat. So the, the best things we've had so far to study it scientifically are things like the God Helmet, which don't replicate the experience but at least give us some sense of what the brain is capable of doing under certain uh influences let's say you know that's part of the why i was asking about rocks like uh paul Devereux showing that you know along fault lines you have more ufo encounters and stuff like that and you know how magnetic fields and and stuff like that affect the brain not necessarily that it's creating hallucinations, but that it might be opening us up to something or creating hallucinations. It's hard to say one way or the other. And if it has a positive effect on you, who cares if it's a hallucination? I think this is like something Whitley said, uh, maybe in recent years, about how if if these things exist, if they are beings, then you'll you'll never actually be able to, for example sit down at a table in a cafe and have a long conversation with them because yeah. that is not just the way they work. But what? You're talking about Whitley, Whitley Strieber in case anyone doesn't know. who. Oh, Whitley yes. Is sorry. Out. I have to contextualize. We all know him, right? Whitley yeah, Strieber. but I don't, I don't know if any of the kids out there, the kooky kids in UFO land, yeah. if they all know. <laughs> but uh, so 
But here's my question about that, even, is like, yeah, we all hear that and it makes sense on a level. On another level, uh, these beings do seem to speak our languages. So why can't we have a sit-down chat with them? Because I don't think they exist in normal reality. I think that when we're experiencing them, a lot of times we're, we're, it's almost like dream logic a lot of times. Even when you're fully awake, it's, it's a language of symbols and things like that. And even if there is some language involved, that's usually not the most important aspect of it. I'll buy that, except then I, then I think about that and I'm like, well, wait a minute. One of the most like obvious not dreams I had was a dolphin coming to me and explaining to me both visually and in English why I need to move to Hawaii right now. And it right. was a very prophetic sort of explanation that was an explanation. It wasn't just like, oh, shit, now i got to figure out what he's trying to say. Sure, and maybe that was a part of you because you weren't where you were supposed to be. Maybe, except I was already coming to Hawaii. So even in the dream, I was like, well, wait a minute, dolphin, I'm coming to Hawaii. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> But I'm just saying, but even in dreams, I'm just saying, like, dreams are normally symbolic and all of that. But sometimes they do just come in with literal stuff. Yeah. So if, if there is another intelligence or even your own through a hallucinogenic state or an altered state of mind, um, you would think that, if not always, obviously, but more times than than seems to be the case, people would have, like, literal sort of sit-down chat explanatory situations which actually Jeff ended up having with that shrouded being. Right, uh, right. For a while. Love that guy. Yeah, and it seemed like people uh, that we were talking to, Susan Kornacki on the show comes to mind, were starting to have that type of situation. And then it just sort of, and then I just didn't hear about it much anymore. It like seemed as though maybe there's a change from little gray beings to sit-down chats with shrouded people. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that's much more rare. Um it, it it's not on. I mean, you could even say Streber's uh, the the key entity there would have been that as well. But I I don't know. I feel like those are very very rare uh, occurrences, and maybe it takes a long time before you're ready to have one of those chats. And even so, the chats don't necessarily. You know, we don't know that what we're being told is actually accurate. Right. And we also don't know, like, I'm thinking about, now, Rob, I don't know about your near-death experience, but we've heard of near-death experiences where people have, you know, the overblown feeling of something, either love or whatever, or the feeling of, I'm being downloaded, or I'm being shown my life, I'm being shown something, and I can't remember what it is, but I have the feeling that I know. There's this discrepancy between what we know, what we're shown, and how we feel, and for some reason, in the moment, it makes complete sense. And when you try to tell it to somebody, it makes no sense. <laughs> well, I remember, um, again, it's, this is something that happened now over 25 years ago. But um, I remember, I, I've always had kind of a, you know, my big thing is I, I like to know. I like to kind of question. I like to, I like to figure things out. I don't, I don't really like to take anything at face value. And it felt like the what I was getting at that moment was just sort of like a download, like, okay, well, here's the things that you've been because you've been so distracted by you know living in a meat box, uh, here's the things that uh, you need to know or that you that you should have been thinking about or that you had previously thought about. Uh, that was what it felt like for me. 
Sorry, I had my I, thing I, on mute. Go ahead. I, I had one of those moments uh, a very long time ago at this point, and it was in a dream state where I was told all kinds of things. And when I woke up, I was blown away by how profound all the information was. I was also still very tired, and I thought I should write all this down. And I said, I don't want to write it all down. It's not like I'm not going to remember this. And then I went back to sleep, and I didn't remember any of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's about it. Same with me when I had my weird experience 10 years ago. There was all this incredible information that was getting beamed into my brain. And I saw the whole universe and how it works. And yeah, didn't really get anything out of it in the <laughs> aftermath. So, Anne, we're all here to learn, but none of us can retain any of our uh, spiritual knowledge. Your thoughts? <laughs> uh, I, well, I've, I've had a similar experience where I, I had uh, been told exactly how um, how uh, a medium can communicate with the dead in, like, great detail, like, explained how it worked, and it all just made so much perfect sense, and then I can't remember any of it at all. So, you know, I've had the same thing happen. I, I thought, I'll remember this always, you know, didn't remember yeah. <laughs> I think, I think what it is is the information doesn't translate into our normal materialistic brain properly. That makes sense. It might, yeah. I, I think uh, arbiters. It, it all made glorious sense at the time, but we're arbiters of almost knowledge. I think that's going to be the name of my next book. <laughs> uh, well, we're just about coming up to where I get a skedaddle here. Um, yeah, but maybe let's. Uh, I don't know. Let's just let's go around. Um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that uh, anyone wanted to get to? Oh, yeah. Uh, very quickly, I was tested for psi abilities at the University of Edinburgh a few years ago, and there was some stuff with regards to clowns. Like, I was thinking about clowns while I was being tested, the Gansfeld test. Uh, I didn't say anything about clowns, but when I had to watch the videos at the end that would decide whether I had psychic abilities or not, there were some clowns. That's the end of that story. Well, is it? Because what the hell did you just say? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> at the end, there were clowns. At the end of what? Yeah, there, there were, were clowns. clowns at the end. At the end clowns. of what? In the room? No, like, like clowns I, showed up? Or what, what are you talking it's about? A, it's a long story. There were clowns in the street. <laughs> it's the Edinburgh Festival. There were clowns in the street oh, okay. performing. <laughs> And then I saw a clown, and I got tested for psychic abilities, and there was a clown, and it didn't appear, and it did appear. Okay, I'm done. Now. Wait, this is no, 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 no. This is the best story I've ever heard. So wait a second. Why were you tested for psi abilities? I don't know. I just volunteered what? for it. You don't know. Somebody asked you on Facebook. <laughs> it was the psychology department of Edinburgh University, the home of psi investigation. Okay, so they put a call out for Psy, for Psy yeah, abilities, and, they, and you were like, eh, why don't I go? They didn't, like, sneak it, they didn't like sneak to you and do it while you're at lunch or anything. No, they, <laughs> they put just... goggles on my eyes, and they played me white noise and sat me in a room, and I had to just see what I was thinking. And then I was thinking about clowns, and I didn't say that. And then I had to watch a, video, a randomly selected video to see if I predicted the future. Huh. And there was a clown in the randomly predicted video. I see. So I so I either am or are not psychic. <laughs> <laughs> scientifically scientifically proven. 
That's interesting. Uh, That's very Paratopia. Thank you. (laughs) Where's John Randall to talk about Toilet Elf, my favorite of all? Uh, All right. Anyone else? (laughs) I don't know if anybody could top that. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's probably a great place to put it. Um, all right. Well, we'll, we'll just wrap here. I want to thank everyone for, uh, for coming out and doing this. I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm sure wherever Jeff is, he's not paying any attention to it, but if he were, he would be, uh, he would be loving this. So you never can tell he might be right over your shoulder. That's true. He's listening to Iron Maiden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, actually, he's, try, he's trying really hard to like the new Iron Maiden song, but it's not happening. <laughs> well, I've been uh, remastering the old shows to put them up, and when I finally finished the first, um, I did the first seventy, but the first n- numbers two through twenty of the first seventy, I didn't have the original masters for, so uh, it took me forever to try to find them, and I couldn't find them, so I ended up finally just redoing the MP3s, and uh, when I finished that. At night, I was, like, feeling triumphant, and I turned on the TV and turned on the YouTube channel on Roku, and what came up as the first recommended thing to watch was the Jeff Ritzman Remembrance. So how weird is that? (sighs) Well, there's your sign, right? There's your magical painting-oriented sign. There you go. But it's okay. (laughs) But it's it's okay to accept it as that, you know? I think so, anyway. It gives you some comfort, and... So be it. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, in terms of magical thinking, um, I'm not even sure what that means anymore, except that it's not repeatable. Like, to me, the repeatable thing about all this paranormal yeah. stuff is that it isn't repeatable, and yet it's been happening since the dawn of time. <laughs> so there's it's your repeatability not, science. <laughs> it, it's it's not repeatable on command is the, is the problem. Right. You can't just say, let's have a UFO encounter and then measure things. Right. Indeed. All right. Well, again, thank you. Uh, let's see if I can remember names. Anne, Rob, Colin, and Soraya. Correct. Yeah, you're welcome. Wow. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, appreciate the much. time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me, too. I appreciate it. Colin, would you like to thank me? Oh, I said cheers very much. Sorry. Okay. No, could, would you like to thank me a little more? Just, you know. Yeah, you're great, Jer. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colin. You went the extra distance, and I appreciate that. All right, that's it. We're done. Thank you, everyone, uh, for participating in this introductory episode. I guess, you know what? There is one thing I will say in closing that is in the the original uh, intro episode from the archive, which is this warning that next week when you hear episode one, Whitley Strieber... Um, I put a, a sound bed to go with the sketch of us being on this island, a sound bed of like seagulls and uh, ocean in the background for the entire duration of the interview, which ended up being a huge mistake. <laughs> but just know that that's only that episode. It's only episode one. Um, a huge mistake tonally, given how it goes with streamer. But also, eh, you know, who the hell wants to listen to that crap for like a half hour <laughs> or longer? Really nobody. So just know that that is not indicative of the, the rest of the next couple of years. You're, you're not going to go crazy with that. Other things, yes. 
All right. Jeff Ritzman, we love you. Thank you for being a part of this with me. Thank you for inviting me to do it with you. And um, I'm just sorry you're not here to see the next generation of people responding to this. Um, Or are you? Question mark. And Lisa and Cody Ritzman, thank you for uh, forcing me to get off my ass and do this. I'm glad... I'm glad you want Jeff's voice out there still uh, to live on. And I'm happy to oblige that for you and for him. Um, All right, here we go. For the very first time in our Undoing Radio history, introducing many cuss words. (laughs) Uh, So much for censored spirituality, huh? Next Friday... Whitley Strieber kicks us off. We'll see you then. <laughs>